Good morning, Mission View. Think about the words of that song. You plead my cause, you right my wrongs, you break my chains, you overcome. You gave your life to give me mine, you say that I am free. What an awesome, awesome message that God has for us today. And I hope that you're encouraged. I hope that you're motivated by the things that you've seen already. We've heard testimony of our children. We've seen, uh, we've heard testimony from song in terms of speaking the truth of our great and awesome God. And I hope that you will engage in God's word this morning. Turn to James chapter 5. We'll get there in a moment. Today, though, I would like to start with a true story tell you a story of a little girl named New Than. That's actually a, an abbreviated name because she's Vietnamese and Vietnamese somehow they, they just love long names. So this is an abbreviated name so that we can actually say it. But she's Vietnamese in culture but she was raised in Phnom Penh, Cambodia. New's parents were nowhere in her life when she was growing up so she was raised by her grandmother. Now, more than anything, knew as a little girl wanted to know the love, loving embrace of a father and the nurture of, of, of her mother. But that wasn't the case. That wasn't her lot in life. Instead, she was raised by her grandmother, and her grandma did as good as she could do growing up in Phnom Penh, Cambodia. Now, grandmother had several children that she needed to take care of, and in doing so, she had to be rather resourceful in terms of meeting the needs of all the children that were under her care. Now, as was the Cambodian way, you had to be very, uh, you had to wheel and deal and try to make, make ends meet however you could. Well, one day, uh, when New was 14, grandmother found herself in a very difficult situation because she was in debt. She had borrowed money from a very shady lender, um, and they needed to have their money back, and so they were putting extreme pressure on grandmother, and there's always threats that go along with that. And so as a result, she felt this pressure that she had to have money that she did not have. Her back was up against the wall. So it was suggested to her that if she were to sell her granddaughter for a weekend, that she could have enough money and then some in order to put bread on the table in the future. And so with this internal strife, because there was nothing in her that wanted to do this, but she had this external pressure and the protection of her family on the line that she had care for, that's exactly what she did. She sold her 14-year-old granddaughter. Not only one time, but a second time and a third time to the highest bidder. Now in the midst of this, this little girl knew her innocence, her moral innocence was totally devastated. It was totally stripped away from her. Now, you need to understand something about this little girl. She was a Christian in the midst of a Buddhist culture. Most girls were Buddhists, but she was fortunate enough that when she was young, a missionary had shared the good news of Jesus Christ to her, and she accepted Jesus not as one of the gods, but as her only God. 
Now, that's important to distinguish because in the Buddhist culture, they will accept Jesus as one of the gods, but not their only god. But in New's case, she believed that this was the one and true only god. She was convinced of it as a child. And as a result of that, she went to a Christian school where she was able to learn the word of God. Well, after this happened, she dropped out of school, and on the third time that she was sold, she finally cried out to God, and this was her prayer. She said, God, I loved you. I love you, and God, I serve you. God, I trust in you, and yet this is what has happened to me. Please, God, save me from this horrible sin. Please spare my life and please use my life to prevent any other girl from going through something like I've gone through again. That was her prayer that day. Now, soon after this, New convinced her grandmother that she was old enough to go and learn how to do hair and nails. And so grandmother gave her permission to do that in order to contribute to the family. And so from that time on, she was not sold again. Uh, to the highest bidder. Now, little, uh, she started working in the uh, hair and nail trade, and little did she know that while she was doing so, the missionary who had an influence on her when she was very, very young had lost track of her. And this missionary was speaking at a conference in Chiang Mai, Thailand, to a group of men, the Missionary Alliance men, and as these men were uh, sitting there, he was telling new story to them. From his understanding, she could have very well been sold into a brothel, and he was concerned about that. As he shared new story with this group of men, there was an insurance man from Akron, Ohio, whose name was Carl Ralston, who was absolutely devastated as a result of this news. He had never heard of such a thing. He knew that prostitution took place around the world, but children being trafficked? How could this possibly be? From that point on in that conference, he didn't hear another word that was spoken. And so he decided to dismiss himself, and he went down to a Starbucks, and he just poured out his heart before God. And as he poured out his heart before God, he saw this little girl that he'd never met before, and he saw her not just as a little girl or a little victim, but he saw her as his own daughter. And imagine what that was like for her. And he just cried out to God, how can this be? What can I do? And it seemed like in his life that there was a period of a drought where God had not spoken, but all of a sudden, God spoke two words to him. Remember, new. When he left, when he left uh, Chiang Mai, Thailand and came back home, he returned with, uh, the, the, with the desire to learn everything he could about this horrific business and to see what God would do through his life. As a result, Carl committed every one of his resources. He was rather wealthy at that time. And he was going to use every one of his resources to start a ministry called Remember New. And over the next two and a half years, he would make six trips back to Cambodia to search for new, to do research, and also to start their very first home of the ministry called Remember New. Now on each trip, he took a little photograph that he had gained from the missionary 
and he went up and down different streets asking if anybody knew this little girl. It was an old faded photograph and he was going up and down the Mekong River. He was going up and down and in and out all the streets in Phnom Penh. But what you need to realize is Phnom Penh has 1.4 million people in the city, not counting all the people out in the suburbs. It truly was looking for a needle in the haystack. But he believed that God would reveal and God would help him, and God answered his prayers. And on his final meeting, he finally got in contact with this girl named New that this ministry had started. You can only imagine New's joy when she found out that an entire ministry was started and that God was answering her prayer that she had prayed. God was at work. New was happy to accept the invitation to be the first employee of Remember, Remember New. And over the years, she has become the spokesperson for Remember New. And on top of that, she finally got the father and the mother she always longed for. Carl and Lori spiritually adopted her, assumed responsibility, not legally because that was impossible to do, but they have taken on full responsibilities, and now she is 27 years of age. Fast forward 10 years, 2016. 10 years of ministry has gone by. 55 homes have now been started. One over 1,300 children have been rescued from being victims of the sex trade in the world, all in 12 different countries. All of these children out of harm's way, all in answer to a prayer of a young girl who cried out to God. You can imagine Leah and I's joy when we were given the invitation this year to go and do news wedding. I couldn't turn it down. It wasn't on the schedule. We didn't, weren't planning on it. We weren't financially thinking about this, but we could not turn it down. And as I, as I was the officiating pastor, uh, it was my joy to stand before New and her groom, Gabriel. And this is what I said to them in their message, just a little part, portion. Gabriel and New, I want you to know what a pleasure and honor it is for me to stand before you today as you unite in marriage. Gabriel, over our Skype conversations, I feel like I've gotten a glimpse of your heart, which is both tender and sensitive to the things of God. New, what can I say about you? You are the darling of so many across this globe. And that is definitely true for Lee and I. It is because of your prayer to the Lord a long time ago that this entire ministry called Remember New exists today. I believe I speak for all of us at this wedding that this is no ordinary wedding. For this wedding truly is a trophy of God's grace and his redemption. Church, I share this story with you today because I think that there are times in our life where God just doesn't make sense. We look at our circumstances, we look at the things that are happening to us, and we just question, where is God in all of this? I can only imagine a frightened 14-year-old girl in a hotel room crying out to God and saying, God, where are you? 
Now, God didn't put her in that room. God didn't put an, a perpetrator in that room. God, there, there's evil that happens around us every single day. But what God does do is he takes the evil things that happen and the horrible things that happen in life, and somehow he changes them, and he is able to do something beautiful, such as start an entire ministry that will rescue other children from the sex trade. What an incredible God we have. So if God is able to do that for new, if God is able to do that in that situation, do you not think that he can do that in your situation, whatever that is? What I see sitting here are trophies of grace, trophies of redemption. If we had time and we went down the line and we heard every person's story, you would hear one change after another of what God did to rescue. And you would say, as the song we just sang, how can it be that God would do such a thing for me? What an awesome and loving God that we have. And today our theme is all about patiently waiting for God because there are times that he asks us to wait and he wants us to wait on him, and in that we have to trust him. Let's pray that God would help us to do that. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a patient people. Help us to be a people that trust you in everything that we go through in life. Help us to hear from your word today, and I pray that you would speak to us on a very, very intimate level, Lord. I pray that you would come alongside of us, that you would encourage us, that you would help us to be the people you want us to be. Help us to realize the people that we are, that we are your children. We are kids of the king. We have been redeemed. We have been ransomed from the evils of this world. And Lord, you are building us up and you want to conform us into your image and you want, us to, you want to make us Christ-like. But Lord, we know that that's sometimes painful because we're stubborn at times. We have our own will that we want to carry out. And Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us bend our will. Help us to bend our will to being before you and humble before you and asking not my will, but your will be done. I pray that you would do that in our body. I pray that you would do something beautiful as you continue to do that in our lives. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. James chapter 5, verses 1 to 12 is what we're going to look at. The passage is rich, rich with all kinds of pictures. So we're going to continue to walk through this passage. But just by way of introduction, Pastor James is going to address two aspects of, of, of the, the believer. The first aspect is for the disobedient, uh, specifically for those that were rich. Now, we're going to talk about what that meant. And these were the people that were inflicting pain on the believer. And then he's going to address the believer that was the recipient of this pain. Of this pain. And he's going to say, you got to be patient through all of this. I'm with you all every step of the way. Now, as Pastor James goes through this, he goes through the disobedience. And really, we don't know whether he's addressing believers or unbelievers or just just uh, new believers, but what he's trying to do is be corrective in nature. Now again, all through this book, we've learned that Pastor James is correcting the body 
in different areas and trials in regards to our tongue and how we ha our attitude towards people. Every single one of these themes here are about things that he corrected us on in the word of God and that he is trying to conform the church to the image of God. Why is he doing it? Why does he have a harsh tone at times? He's going to have a harsh tone today. Why does he have that? Because he loved the church. He wants the church to follow after him. He wants the church to be on mission with God and not sidetracked. And one of the ways that we can be sidetracked is in our wealth. And so he is going to address the rich today. He starts off with a warning in verse 1. He says, Come now, you who are rich, weep and howl for your misery are coming upon you. Now that's not exactly the most gentle greeting in the world. I mean, he doesn't start with my brethren. He gets right to the point and he addresses the rich. Now, I want you to know before we dismiss this and say, well, that, this ain't about me. The first part, I could just cruise through this because I'm not rich. No, 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 someone else. Now that person is rich. Well, remember, statistically speaking, by living in America, we are the richest people in the world. So we have wealth. You have food. You have clothing. You have money to pay bills. You're rich. So I don't want us to discount it. I want us to look at it and say, okay, is there anything that God would be speaking to me today? Now, what he does is he says here, he says, weep and howl, which means to sob bitterly. Then he goes on and says the word misery, which means to have deep feelings of wretchedness. James is basically saying this, what you are about to hear should make you feel wretched and should move you to the point of tears. If this is true of you, this is what, as he's writing this letter, it should move you in that way. And then he tells them that they were guilty of four different things. Now, the first thing that they were guilty of was guilty of hoarding. Take a look at verse 2 and 3. He says, your riches have rotted your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Do you think he's being picturesque in his words? Do you think he's kind of being in your face? Absolutely. He says, you have laid up treasures in the last days. Now, James actually gives three vivid word pictures just in this first guilty of hoarding. He says you're guilty of hoarding in three different areas. First of all, in the area of rotten food. When he says your riches have rotted, he was referring to their food source. You see, food was a way in which they could measure their wealth if they had an abundance of food. Now, the, the, the implication here is that because they had an abundance of food and it was rotting and they weren't taking it and using it to help somebody else, that they were guilty of something that was grievous to God. The second thing that they were guilty of was moth-eaten clothes. Same kind of concept. Another way in which they measured their wealth was by the material clothing that they had. If their closets were packed full of clothing and they hadn't worn them, and it was becoming moth-eaten, 
the indictment is the fact that you have these, not that they had these things, but that they were not using them to help somebody else because all they're doing is sitting in your closets, deteriorating away, doing no good to nobody. And finally, he says, your gold and silver have rusted. Now, we know that these are imperishable type of things. I mean, they, they're not going to rust, but he's creating a word picture again. They had money in their accounts, and there were those that were hurting in the body of Christ, and they were doing nothing with their resources to help them out. So after giving these three very unbelievable word pictures, he says this, he says, this hoarding will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. Quite vivid, wouldn't you say? This passage is pointing to judgment that is coming to these individuals. Now, we know from the scriptures that judgment is going to come for the believer, and the judgment will come for the unbeliever. Nobody will escape judgment. Let's talk about judgment for the believer. Sometimes when we talk about judgment for the believer, I think for us, we think, yeah, I got to go be judged. It's kind of a formality before I get to enjoy eternal bliss with God. Don't pass by it so quickly. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says this in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 13. I don't, I'll just listen to it. It says that our day of judgment will be revealed with fire. He's talking about the believer. And the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive a reward. If it burns up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Now, I don't know what all that means. But I don't. I, it's enough that causes me fear and trepidation in the sense of respect of, and awe of God that what I do here matters to what I, what's going to happen in eternity. What I do here, it matters. Church, when, when we give an account of our lives, what will God say about how we used our resources for Him? Are we living in a bubble of our own desires? Or are we taking our food that's about to rot? Are we taking our closets filled with clothes that are starting to dry rot? Are we taking our finances and are we using them for God in some way? See, church, God wants us to be givers. He wants us to give in a hilarious way. He wants us to be generous. And before we pass by this too quickly and say, no, that's somebody else, we got to ask ourselves, have I thrown away food? Do I have clothes right now in my closet that I'm not using? Do I have money in reserve? And then I need to ask, who have I used my re to, to help? Who, how, how have I used my resources to help somebody else? This isn't Steve Marshall. This is Pastor James speaking to Steve Marshall and to each of us for us to think about our resources. So that's what they were guilty of, guilty of hoarding. But he then he says that you're guilty of injustice. Take a look at verse 4. He says, Behold the wages of the laborers who mow your fields, which you kept back by, by fraud, and crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. 
See, the next area that they were guilty of was an injustice of holding back money that was due to their workers. Evidently, the employers found some excuse as to why they did not have to pay the wages that their, 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 their workers deserved. Now, all Jews at that time, whether they were believers or unbelievers, knew the law. They knew that it was against the law to hold back wages because these were poor day laborers and they needed daily pay for daily food. But in this situation, these employers were defrauding their workers in order to, to buffer their profit margins. Boy, we see all kinds of injustices in our world today. My question for you is, if you're a business owner or if you're a person of influence in your company, please know that there is an accountability that is held to you, whether, you're a believe, whether it's a believing company or not, of how fairly we treat those around us. Are you personally treating people fairly? Then the third area that they were guilty of was usury. I know this is harsh. It's like one, two, three. But this is what Pastor James is addressing. He says in verse 5, You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence, and you have fattened your heart in a day of slaughter. Now he's dressing not the employee, but the employer directly, and he's saying, this is what you have done. And there's three things that they were guilty of here. These individuals, first of all, were concerned with the here and now. And he's saying, God's not pleased with it. He says, you have lived on earth in luxury, clearly showing this truth. These individuals had no concern about the, the hereafter. They were living for the moment. They were living to get rich. They were living to have all the nice things. That's what they were living for. That's what their desire was. They just wanted to have a nicer house. They just wanted to have a nicer vehicle, if we were to put it in modern-day terms. They wanted to have the nicer toys. They wanted to have the nicer things in life. This is what he is saying you are guilty of, guilty of usury, all for you. Second, these individuals were wasteful. The word self-indulgence carries the idea that it has excess and the excess is going to waste. And finally, these individuals were fattening their inner desires. Without knowing it, these individuals were kind of like animals. That's the picture here, that were fattening themselves up on the riches of this world only to be slaughtered by God. Now, the word slaughtered is a pretty harsh word, but it means judgment, that there would be a judgment for God, by God. Now, these harsh words should cause us to reflect on what God sees here. What God sees is selfishness. And God doesn't like selfishness, especially when it's those that call themselves followers of Christ. And there was a possibility that there were some that were followers of Christ that were doing these things. And he is saying, I don't like that. Now think about it for a minute. Why is it that God is so adamantly opposed to selfishness? Because it's so contrary to his character. God is a generous God. God is so generous. He lavishes grace upon us. He lavishes us with everything that we need. We're told in Romans that it's the kindness of God that is desired, to, that leads us to a place of repentance. That's the kind of God that we serve. We have a hilariously giving God who loves to give, who loves to bless. 
And when we take that blessing and we just say, it's mine, it's mine, my precious. You know, that kind of attitude that you saw in the Lord of the Rings. That's what he hates. He hates it. And sometimes he sees it in his own children. And God says, I will discipline you. See, if we see our time as ours, if we see our money as ours, if we see our home as ours, if we see our talents as ours, then we're guilty of hoarding. We're guilty of usury. And it's all about us. My friends, if you've never been a giver, there is a time to repent. And right now is the time to correct that. Some of you would say, man, I want to be a giver, but I'm just so much in debt. Okay, the point. Usury. Why are we in debt? Because we've been feeding our desires. We need to take strategic steps to get out of that place because everything we have is God's. And God looks at it as a test. He says, where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. So that's what he says. And then finally, he says that they were guilty of persecution. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now, the final judgment against the rich is that they used the judicial system to have some innocent believers put to death. These rich people were, people were using their best resources against these defenseless individuals, these irritants, to get rid of them. Now, I don't believe that any of us could relate with this situation. I hope not. But what we can gain is the travesty behind the mentality behind this. The mindset is that whatever it takes to get ahead, that's the mentality. And that's what God hates. So this is what was creating the persecution. But now we come to the persecuted, those that had to wait patiently in verses 7 to 12. Take a look at verse 7 through 9. What he does is he gives three word pictures of how they were to patiently wait. Number one, they were to be diligent like a farmer. Look at verse 7 through 9. Be patient, therefore, brothers. Now he addresses them as brothers. Until the coming of the Lord, until Jesus comes in the sky, you are to be patient. That's how long. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. See, the first picture that James gives here of the believer is the farmer. Now, this was an illustration that every one of them could grasp onto really, really easy because they were an agrarian society. They knew what farming was all about. And so he is giving this illustration, and James' point was very, very obvious. A farmer must wait for the land to yield its crops. They must wait for the sky to yield the, the rain. The fact is, a farmer would never go out and stand over an ear of corn and say, okay, buddy, you can do it, you can do it, ah, you can do it, grow, grow. You can't will an ear of corn. You can't will fruit. What you have to do is you have to trust God that he is going to make all the provisions that you need for the growth to take place. That's what he is saying. 
And he's saying that the farmer, though, has to, he can't just neglect his responsibility and say, you know what, nothing I can do, so I'm just going to go and lay down, have a nap, and I'm just going to neglect everything. No, he is saying that they had to do something in order to be a good farmer, but they had to wait for God. What were their responsibilities? And what are our responsibilities for us? Number one, we have to be diligent in our work. My friends, we can't create fruit in a church. We can't create seats being filled with bodies. We can't do that, but God can. What we do is we cultivate. What we do is plant the seed. What we do is water the seed. And we trust that God will bring the growth in our circle of responsibility. And God can help us grow individually and as a church. We have to be diligently at work. Number two, we need to establish ourselves firmly in the Lord. That's what the passage says. Establish your heart in the Lord. Why? Because we have to have a rock-solid anchor in this life. Too many times I hear of individuals that have wandered away from God. And all of a sudden, when they've wandered away from God, they are so far away from Him that they are doing things that they never thought they would ever do. People that were in the ministry, people that have been leaders in churches, all of a sudden they're getting divorced from their spouse. They're, they're getting separated or they're, they're, they're just doing things that you'd say, what? what has gotten into your mind? How did that happen? We have to be anchored to Christ at all times, my friends. I don't trust myself outside of Christ. I don't trust myself outside of Christ. So we have to stay anchored to him. We have to stay anchored to the word of God. Establish our hearts. That's what he's saying you need to do. And then he says in the passage, he says, don't grumble against one another, brothers. He's basically saying there needs to be a unity of working together as believers. Friends, we can't rush things. We can't rush our kids to grow. We can't rush our church to grow. We can't rush ourselves to personally grow. But what we can do is we can cultivate and create an environment in our family, in our church, in our life personally, so that growth can happen. And that comes through daily being patient and waiting on God. And here's the second picture that he gives in verse 10. He says, okay, I want you to be diligent like a farmer, but I want you to be faithful as a prophet. As the, he says in verse 10, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophet who spoke in the name of the Lord. See, the second example of patience was prophets. Now, the Jewish people knew all kinds of prophets. They knew of people like Elijah. Elisha, for example, was a faithful man during a three-and-a-half-year famine. He was the one who pursued a wicked group of people uh, that wanted, uh, there was a group of people that wanted to kill him because he had prophesied against their 450 prophets of Baal and said, no, 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 your, your God is dead. My God is alive. And he proved it. He proclaimed the word of God uh, boldly to them. Then there's people like Jeremiah who was thrown in a cistern because he proclaimed the truth of God and who was left for dead. The whole idea of a prophet was not a happy picture. It was one who trusted God even though he was in the midst of difficult life circumstances and people persecuted them because they spoke the truth. He says, yeah, like that. That's how I want you to be. I want you to be faithful as a prophet. And then finally, he says, be trusting as Job. Take a look at verse 11. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast, 
You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now, the beautiful picture here is that of Job. And he says, I want you to remain steadfast. Consider those blessed who remain steadfast, like Job. And he does kind of a play on words, Pastor James does, in using the word blessed. Because when he talks about Job, Job really was blessed, but not for the reasons that you think. We know at the beginning of the book of Job, if you were to read it, you would find out that this man had a lot of money. This man had a lot of things. He had a huge family. He had great success in his society. But then God allowed the enemy to strip it all away. All the blessings were gone, and yet James cites Job as blessed because he persevered. You see, the blessing wasn't the people or the things as we often see them, but rather the blessing was his deep faith in the Lord in the midst of horrendous circumstances in life. The thing that's so impressive is that Job couldn't fully comprehend everything that was going on. He couldn't understand that there was a battle in heaven, a spiritual battle between the enemy and God. He couldn't see any of that. All he could see in his life circumstances is that everything he had was gone. He had a wife that was saying, just curse God and die. That was a lovely woman. And then he had his kids that were killed. His material possessions were wiped away. All of it was gone. All of it. Any one of those things, one of those things would cause us to think about just going into a deep depression, if not worse. And yet this is what Job says in chapter 1. He says, the Lord gave and the Lord takes away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Pretty amazing. He says in chapter 13, though he, God, slay me, yet I will hope in him. How does anybody do that? You do it when you have a rock solid faith that God is in control and that you are trusting him with all of your, all of your heart. Job would continue to get up after he was beat down and he would continue to, to, to be able to trust God and he was full of compassion and he was full of mercy as our passage says. He didn't budge one inch away from the Lord. And the challenge for you and I is that we have the same kind of trust in God in the midst of whatever circumstances we have. When life tackles us, what will we do? Some of you guys know that Emmett Smith was, is, holds the record for the uh, all-time rushing, rushing leader in the NFL. If you were to total up all of his yards, it would be equivalent to 10 and a half miles. Now that's pretty good. 10 and a half miles over his career. But what's even more impressive is when you realize that he was knocked down every 4.2 yards in that journey. We need to continue to get up. We need to continue to trust God. And here's the conclusion of Pastor James. It's kind of unusual. He says, but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, 
that you may fall on that you may not fall under condemnation. So why does he say that? Do you know what happens to us when we become anxious? Do you know when we start what happens to us when we start taking control? We start manipulating the situation. We start making deals. We might we might start we might out of urgency say, "Oh, I swear this. I swear that the, to God that this is going to happen or this is going to happen." And what James is saying, "No, no, no. Don't get that way." Don't get that way in your life circumstances. You are to trust God. You're not going to show disrespect to God. You're not going to take his name in vain. You need to trust him in everything, in every aspect of your life. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. As we close out our passage, I want to bring perspective to the difficulties that we face as believers. Because we're told in Romans 8.28 a truth. And the truth is this. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. Now, we know that everything that happens to us isn't good, but it doesn't say that. It says that God works it all out for the good. This verse reminds us that God is the one who has the big picture. Picture it like this. Have you ever gone on your computer and done Google Earth? You're like looking at your house on island. I'm looking at my house on Island View, and then I zoom out, and I see the neighborhood, and then I zoom out, and I see, I see the whole uh, uh, Uniontown area. Then I see North Canton and Northeast Ohio, and then all of a sudden, United States of America. And before I know it, I'm in the celestial stars. I have the whole world. I mean, it's like really, really cool. Well, that's God's perspective on our life. He has the big picture on us all the time. We need to remember that. As you look at this picture on the screen, you see a driver that broke through that guardrail. Now that driver, from what I understand, he was driving 75 miles per hour. He crashed through that guardrail that was there, flipped over that culvert, and faced the opposite direction of where he was going. Pretty amazing, isn't it? Now, it was a 22-year-old driver and an 18-year-old passenger, and they left the car with just scratches. Pretty amazing. Now, let's get a greater perspective of what took place that day. That's where the car landed. Now, it's pretty amazing when you zoom out and you see a different perspective, don't you? My friends, God has the big picture of our life. And we can trust him every single time. We're going to sing a song that I just absolutely love called Give Me Faith. And as we sing this song, I would engage and petition you to think of it as a prayer. Think of it as your prayer. But I would ask you also to think about how God has been speaking to you in the passage today. Is there an area of disobedience that he wants you to work on? Is there a sense of hoarding of wealth, of food, of clothes, of money? Are you being fair with people? Have you, do you take advantage of others? Is God speaking to you in that way? Or maybe God is speaking to you that he wants you to be patient with him and wait on him. Do you need to be diligent in your work for God, like the farmer? Do you need to speak the truth of God, like the prophet? Or do you need to trust God in the midst of horrible circumstances like Job? 
Whatever it is, our response of worship is this prayer to God. So let's use this time as just to reflect on the things that God has been teaching us and allow us to do business in our heart with God.